0: So, welcome to my living room. (laughs) Nice. Nice to be back in New York. I just got in from Europe on Sunday evening. I don't know if you read about the British Airways full IT meltdown during the weekend. Well, I was in the middle of that all the way over, so that was kind of fun. And... um, It's just coming up to about 1 (laughs) a.m. for me. So uh, I'm a little, uh, yeah, I'm a little still in that time zone. But somehow, of course, even though 10 minutes ago, just I was walking in, I was thinking, like, oh, it really feels like the middle of the night to me. But, you know, arriving here and uh, just a certain confluence of circumstances, uh, the familiarity with the place, and a certain, you know, real affection for new york insight and a real appreciation for the work that uh, people do here and now coming to sit at the front and looking around and seeing some familiar faces and um equally those who are not familiar you know and especially those few hands that say they're coming for the first time there's something quite delightful about that so you know i'm i'm and I speak for myself, but actually I'm sure I speak really on behalf of everybody that's here. If you just think, those of you who it's not your first time and you've maybe come to this kind of event many, many times, you just it's one of the beautiful things when one considers how one got into this kind of practice. Often one gets into this kind of practice through some kinds of uh, difficult life circumstances. Some financial pressure, or some, or bereavement, or a separation, or some other kind of event that makes one sort of question one's own existence, or where one's going, what one's prioritizing, etc. Or sometimes just not because anything particular is wrong, but even more disconcerting. Sometimes everything seems ro- all right. Like I'm doing okay. My relationships are okay, and I'm, I'm financially I'm okay, and everything seems to be going fine but still I don't feel quite right. There's some sense of a kind of feel for or a longing for some kind of depth or a discovery that one intuits one may be able to make through really turning one's attention as directly and intimately and deeply as possible to really look at life under the kind of microscope of meditation. So, that's what we have some opportunity for this evening, to look at life under the microscope of meditation and of some reflections that I'll offer, and also of some discussion that we can have together. So, the title, I said, I think, Going Against the Stream, Bringing... Wisdom and Compassion and Peace from the Inside Out. Does that sound familiar? Something of that nature. I remember reading it just uh, an hour or so ago and thinking, well, that sounds ambitious for an evening class. And then I thought... And then as I was just walking the last few blocks here and thinking a little bit about the title, I thought an alternative title might be All You Need is Love and a Bit of Wisdom. And so those are, the, those are the two bits that I'd like us to kind of uh, explore a little bit together. The, the wisdom part and the love part, and I'll speak more about it later, but just as something of a set as a, of a setup for us, or as an orientation for the evening and before we meditate together. You know, that, that going against the stream, which is one of the very classical ways that the Buddha describes this practice, Going against the stream specifically of what in Dharma teachings are called the three poisons. Going against the stream of greed, hatred, and delusion. And, you know, they're quite heavy duty, those words. And in many ways, the central feature of Dharma practice is the meeting of, in our own experience, the exploring of in our own experience, the the understanding of, in our own experience, and and the liberation of those three forces, greed, hatred, and delusion. But that doesn't sound very glamorous, right, as spiritual practice. It's like, oh, I'm I'm going to New York Insight tonight to work on my greed, hatred, and delusion. It's like, oh. Because implicit in that is that I'm acknowledging myself as basically greedy, hateful, and deluded. No wonder there's not that many people that get interested in meditation. So, I, I, try, I, I like to frame the three poisons in a, in a slightly different way for two reasons. One, because, just because I think those, those terms are a bit heavy duty. Uh, and two, because in general, in, in teaching and in general in my own practice, I'm always quite interested to find a vocabulary for sort of classical teachings that fits experience as much as possible a vocabulary that points to how those things actually are felt and known and experienced in us so and while we may be we may be familiar in a way with what it's like to be greedy or to, to feel hatred for example I think we can find a better vocabulary, a more attuned vocabulary than that. And the vocabulary I'd like to use this evening is one that some of you may be familiar with the way I speak about this as what I sometimes call the three Ds. Demand, defense, and disconnect. So greed, or demand, is that force whereby I'm compelled towards some specific object that thing that I want and I need, that I like, right? And we, that's how we experience it, energetically, as a kind of a contraction, a fixation on some pleasant object, some yubby object, whether it's a material object or an immaterial object, or experience, oh, I want, pull towards. And then the opposite, you know, traditionally called hatred, Defence. The contraction against, the pulling back from, the, the pushing away of an unpleasant object. What I don't like, what I don't want, what I'm afraid of, or what I don't want to fight with. So we, we, the experience is one of actually feeling, get defensive. And then the third form is one of just kind of spacing out, disconnecting from being present. So those are three very particular directions. Towards something specific that I, that I like or want. Away from something specific that I don't like or don't want. Or just kind of, nothing, no specific object, but just this sort of losing contact with oneself. Sometimes through just kind of dullness. Going uh, unconscious in various ways. Or lose contact through, through a sense of boredom. Or restlessness or agitation, etc. Sometimes I also call them the three C's compulsion, contraction, and confusion. So, what, what's key, whatever the language we use, and certainly what's been the key for me in you know, some decades of really exploring this stuff, is the sense of being willing to, to really feel those things happening. As an energetic movement, the movement towards demand, movement away from defense and the the just the kind of like the, the spacing out or losing myself in disconnect because then they become very work very workable right? I also think speaking about them that way sort of takes the judgment out of them we don't we, you know rather than admonishing ourselves for being greedy or hateful or just negative. Right? Rather than the admonishment of that being some wrong thing that we shouldn't be doing, rather we're actually letting ourselves explore by letting oneself feel. What, what's it like when my mind gets fixated on something? What's it like, actually? What's desire, demand? What's it like in the mind, regardless of the object that it fixates on? Right? You can fixate on tons of things. I've just been walking around New York City for like a couple of hours. Like plenty to fixate on. Right? Just so many people, shop windows, stuff that's saying, you know, look at me, buy me, eat me, drink me, in various ways. Oh. Oh, oh! Right. And just, wow, what a great way! What a great opportunity to just to kind of feel the way the mind moves, to study the way the mind what, likes to fixate. And as I say, without uh, judging that, without admonishing oneself for it, studying it so you can see what's it like when when the mind fixates. What's the fixation trying to do? What happens if I, rather than just being seduced by the object that I like or don't like, what happens if I actually pay attention to the process? I let myself really feel and follow the, uh, the fixation feeling, the demand. What happens when, as I experience that demand and that tension, what happens if I consciously just feel it as a contraction and then let it soften? What does that do to my experience? So just those kinds of questions then bring what, you know, slightly pejoratively can be called the three poisons, greed, hatred and delusion, etc. Brings those things very close, very accessible, brings our practice very close. Sometimes, if we if we practice in this kind of environment, right, which has got these very optimizing conditions, you know, we come here together, we sit rather quietly and respectfully, and we lead each other in meditation practice. It can seem like this is what Dharma practice is like, as if it requires a certain quietitude, a certain you know, optimized conditions. But if we're really interested in this this core, central element of the liberation of going against the stream by meeting these fixations, exploring these fixations, understanding these fixations, liberating these fixations, then it increasingly turns out that there's, there's no moment in which our practice is unavailable. There's no moment... ...that can't benefit from us feeling into and finding out about what our mind's doing in any one moment. And while that is, as I say, a kind of an exploration of what our mind is doing in any given moment... ...the way we experience that isn't just some abstract mental process... It's as a contraction. It's it's a it's a physical process. I mean, it's easy for us to think of meditation as some kind of mind training. But actually, meditation is a visceral activity. Awakening is uh, yeah is visceral. It often reflects that this wonderful term mindfulness that's gaining so much currency in the wider culture. I wonder how it might be different if we'd called it bodyfulness instead. A willingness to to study the mind, learn about the mind, meet the mind, explore the mind, without leaving this kind of embodied, contactful, kinesthetic, intimate experience. So. I give those reflections as a little bit of the ground for our practice and our exploration together and we'll see where we go with that so let's spend some time in meditation I'm aware that some of you may have been sitting here for some time even. so I'll take a little time to offer some reflections around the theme around these three forces or directions or contractions and then I'll have some opportunity to explore and discuss together like I I think I said just before the meditation the just the exploring these movements has been um a huge part of my practice really I, it's, it's um it's been an enormous source of insight somehow and because it's n- not so glamorous i mean and because those the three poisons are usually framed in what i was saying earlier was this rather heavy duty language greed hatred delusion i think i think it doesn't get enough airtime in some ways we'd rather talk about wisdom and compassion right that's what we put on the posters generally because it's more attractive qualities it's like a, it's better marketing right but the problem is then we get busy trying to practice wisdom and compassion Wisdom and love. And in my experience, you can't really practice wisdom. And you can sort of practice love. We'll get to that a bit later. But most essentially, the beautiful qualities that get pointed to in Dharma practice are not something that we can do. We don't do the liberated qualities. Liberated qualities naturally, naturally, naturally come forth. How? When? When we're not contracted and fixated in one of these three directions. So rather than trying to be all wise and compassionate, maybe we're better off attending as sincerely and as steadily and as continuously as we can. Attending. Attending to where I get demanding, where I get defended, where I, get, where I disconnect. And the more sincerely we do that, and the more we recognize it, and the more in any, every moment of seeing and, uh, and daring to soften that, we kind of make space for a freer way of being. We make, naturally make space for these more liberated qualities quality of being able to be in our experience in a way that's undemanding, undefended, undistracted. A a way of being in our experience that's able to actually really just feel into what's happening. Take time to sense what's happening. Feel the way in which a freer or more loving or kinder or more skillful response can come forward. So, I'll try to speak a little bit about these three directions and the studying of them, or meeting of them, exploring them. And then a little bit also about the kind of the... about the freer heart qualities that can come forward as a result of that. There's many versions of these three, All right? And sometimes, in a kind of slightly simplistic but maybe helpful anyway, sort of Buddhist psychology, we might ask each other, "What what type are you?" Like, like so, we all know all three, right? We all know what it's like to be to get demanding, to get defensive, to disconnect. But we tend to have one or other speciality, right? A favorite direction. Right? Are you a greed type, or an aversive type? Or a deluded type. That's the you know the unglamorous Buddhist language bit of it, right? So we soften it a little bit more. We say, what's the direction you're more likely to get caught in, right? Are you more likely to demanding, or get defensive, for example? And even within those, there are there are different versions of that. I would say there's an introverted version, and there is an extroverted version of each, which I'll, I'll go into a little bit. Also, this is a kind of futurizing version, or a pasteurized version, (laughs) or a, a present version. So, some of us have more of a tendency to get caught up in the future. Some of us have more of a tendency to get caught up in the past, and some of us have more of a tendency to get caught up in the present. Meditation makes some big deal out of the present moment all often. You've got to be in the present moment. One can make just as much of a mess out of the present moment <laughs> as one can out of the future or past moments. So some of us we might go to the just might notice a strong habit to go to the future, right, or in, in a demanding way. We call, tend to call that hope or fantasy, right? Oh, I can't wait till this happens. I want this. Well, some of us go to the future more, but in a, a, a attracted or defended way. Called, usually called worry or anxiety. Oh no, no, no! What will happen? What will happen? Some of us would go to the past more in a in a kind of a, around a pleasant object, which we tend to call nostalgia. Oh, wasn't it great when? Let oh, no, no. go back that way. Or well, some of us we be more likely to go back to the past, but in a the defensive way, right? In an aversive way, in a concerned way. Oh, called regret. Usually, like, oh God, I can't believe I did that, and etc. etc. Or uh, going back in that uh, difficult way, not so much about what we did, but reinforcing the drama of what he did, or what she said, or how outrageous it was, etc., etc. But some of us are more tend to do, get caught up more just in the present. Sounds better, doesn't it, being in the present moment? But one can be just endlessly commentating on and analysing the present. You see that even in meditation. You go, oh, breath, yes, being here with my breath. Okay, now it's the in breath, now it's the out breath. Just like like a sports commentator. Oh, we're coming along, as now it's the end of the in breath, and the end of the in breath is turning into the out breath. You know, when you watch sports, sometimes you think you just wish the commentator would shut up so you can watch the tennis, right? And that too, so getting in the prison, we can go in the kind of kind of reinforcing sort of telling ourselves I mean, you can see that in meditation oh yeah look now the breath now I've really got it this is really cool oh yeah he said feel your legs I can really feel my legs right? we're telling ourselves so much about the process that it gets in the way or more in a kind of negatively reinforced way Oh, I'm, you know, what's the matter with me? Why don't I understand? Oh, I've got another thought. I can't believe I'm still thinking. Oh, every time he asks, "Where's your attention?" It's always somewhere else, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, it's good that you laugh. I mean, we laugh partly because we recognise it, right? Like, oh yes, okay. But also, it's it's really important that as we explore this stuff, that we can actually just hold it lightly. Rather than it being this this terrible thing I do, oh yes, I'm like that, I do that. It's like, oh yeah, it's human. The fact that for thousands of years these teachings have had a thread we can talk to each other about our experience because it's human experience It's human experience to fixate on the future or the past or the present in one or other of these ways. And what's useful, like we say, isn't for us to admonish ourselves for that, but to study it and study it not in a conceptual way but in this kind of felt way direct way intimate way so you might ju- you might reflect as i go through these different kind of ways that we do it you might reflect oh yeah what's what's my speciality? and then so the introverted version of those tends to look different from the extroverted version the introverted um grasping for the pleasant right, tends to be a, a way of trying to make the self feel secure. What do I need to be okay? Or oh, I, I want that to happen for me. I need this kind of condition. Right? Kind of, it's, it seems to, it's all about me right, and how I can feel uh, good or how I can feel okay. Well, the introverted version of the, the, the aversion, the um, defendedness, Right? What's wrong with me? A lot of, a lot of energy can go fixating on what's wrong with me. What do I need to change? Oh, it's this, and then we cast about blaming why this is wrong with me, and because of my parents usually. And you know, like one of my friends says, if it's not one thing, it's your mother.
1: <laughs>
0: it's not really fair on mothers, but psychotherapists will recognise that uh, theme. So the the introverted defensive thing like uh, uh, focusing on what seems to be wrong in this case wrong with me or the or the disconnected way the sense of just kind of losing oneself into some kind of dream world losing oneself into uh, into kind of various ways of going unconscious And then the extroverted version of those things is more. It's the the sort of the, the storyline is more about the world, right? So then the the demand, the greed. What do I need? Not what do like? Not the introverted version of what do I need here? What? Do, how do I need things to be? How should I need? To, how do I need to be? But what do I need to get from the world? Oh, that! If I had that. Whether it's kind of the gross, obvious material expressions of things, you know, that house, that car, that, that lover, whatever. Or, whether it's the, the, or the, the kind of tendency to keep casting, and to create an image of ourselves that corresponds to some ideal. I should be like that. I should act like that. I should look like that in the world. I should be seen like that. And then I'm trying to catch up with that idealized self-image. It demands that the world conform to my wishes. And that's, that's, it's not to say one shouldn't have some kind of aspiration. Right? There's plenty of really good, wise, useful, dynamic ways to move towards in some skillful direction, to move towards some kind of skillful goal. But it's very different to move from the basis of aspiration, grounded in how one is, and pointing oneself in a certain skillful direction. From the kind of grasping after the idealizing, which isn't grounded here, it's fixated upon, demanding of the ideal, and then all the anxiety of trying to catch up to that. Or the extroverted version of the uh, negativity, defensiveness, right? fixating on what's wrong with the world, fixating in a way that's filled up with blame, cynicism etc or then just the the more deluded the third direction the delusive disconnected sense of the world where one just gets kind of pulled and pushed around by by the world by the sense of this so much oh what should I do Uh, don't know so indecision one of those kinds of things or um, just kind of Kind uh, sort of switching direction, switching focus very easily, getting seduced by one thing and then seduced by another in some kind of chaotic or disorganized or disconnectful way. So those are two different versions, right? The introverted version and the extroverted version. Oh, well, what's your style? And it's interesting how just any situation like arriving here tonight. Right. One can come in, same situation, walk into a meditation room. And yet, any any one of those three directions can be happening. Right? Oh, you mm. can walk in with a sense of, you know, like, thank God I've finally made it to a meditation because you know in a hall, and I'm really going to get f- focused, and I'm really going to have some deep experience. Mm. Whatever. And fixate on what, what, uh, what's great, or you can fixate on oh, I want that spot. That's a really great spot to sit. Right? Let me. You know, and I know these sound like kind of gross examples, and you're all way too sophisticated to to be concerned by these kind of things. But <laughs> right. Again, it's not to d- demonize or admonish oneself, but just to see, what do I do when I walk into a situation? Do I walk into a space? Do I look for a, a yummy object to fixate upon? Right. Oh, he looks cute. Maybe I'll try and sit next to him, such a Or we walk in, and to a situa- any situation, and the tendency to look at what's wrong. Oh. I don't like the lighting in here. What are they trying to do? Why is the lighting so dim? Why can't they turn it up? It's the evening, I want to stay awake. etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Or one turns it, one arrives, one barely f- notices the lighting, one barely notices the thing. one's barely thinking about meditation because when they, as soon as one arrived, it just just sort of sits down, oh, and then ah oh, mind's off, just filling itself up with the usual disconnective stuff the usual bits of this and that, the bi- usual bits of half-remembered stuff from the day or half-anticipated stuff of later in the evening, etc. So whatever the flavor, whatever the direction, whatever the speciality, like I was trying to point to you know, in a very small way during the meditation, the, the, the potency for working with this stuff, meeting it, exploring it, understanding it, liberating it, is in the the getting familiar with the physical energetic contractions. It's it's hard to work with the mind directly. Because mind is constantly telling us stories about our experience, it's much more reliable... It's much more uh, steady. It's much more fruitful to work with this stuff, in like in the the body field, if you like. In the um, yeah, at the level of just the sensation, it's much more workable to to be attuned to your experience here have a bodyful attention, like I was saying earlier, to contrast with the idea of mindfulness, to a bodyful attention, that then when you notice that your attention's caught up somewhere, you can actually feel the being caught up. If you're just trying to work with it at the level of the citta, right, the, the the mind's relationship, then you notice you're caught up, but then you're thinking about the being caught up a lot. What's that? It's just being more caught up thinking about how caught up i am but if i can if i can actually attune to feeling the way that happens i can make a difference right there that's actually simpler and more direct and more effective and more liberating than thinking about where i'm caught up why i'm caught up what i should do about being caught up etc And then, of course, these, these three directions, they have their... not. So we've spoken about them kind of personally until now, right? Introverted version, extroverted version. But they also have their worldly per- version, their cultural versions. And to the extent that our human culture is... Um, you know, culture is formed just out of collective human activity. So if these are the three forces that are running things, or the, if these are the stream of human tendency, these three forms, then we see them playing out. Right? We see that, I mean, and as our world has become more globalized and more institutionalized, we see more globalized and institutionalized forms of these playing out. And Western culture. I could say Western culture to be nice, but basically, I mean, American culture. Right. <laughs> American culture has become the sort of the, the, the most dominant. Right now, the rest of the world is looking at America and going, really? Are we, are we really going to take these guys as any kind of... Uh... Anyway, let's not go there. <laughs> but... like, Okay, let's, I'll make it slightly less. I won't call it American culture. Consumer culture. Right, which is actually the kind of the dominant global culture, it's not the only culture, right, in the world, far from it, but it's the dominant culture. Consumer culture is the globalized, institutionalized version of that wanting, demanding, needing, greeding, right? fixating on getting, having, doing, becoming more. And you know maybe we're concerned. We kind of need to be concerned about the kind of the rampage of consumer culture, the the, the, kind of the way we're consuming the resources, etc., etc. The stuff that you know about as well as I do, I'm sure. But how are we going to do anything about that? Right? If we or we can't we can't just work with that in an abstract way. Because. That human culture of that, what we call consumer culture, it's arisen just because of our need, Ah, our collectively, all of us, or our perceived need, or our habit at least, our tendency, our fixation on demanding. So there's a really important link there between how we respond whether it's the way we respond in terms of the kind of responsibility to t- we take for how we use our money and our resources and our time and our attention what do we give our resources to what do we prioritize where where do where do our where does our time and money and energy get pointed at in the world, how we participate in culture, or whether we actually have some kind of activism uh, role in standing up for some of those things that seem to us to be dangerous or manipulative or exploitative or divisive, etc. And the way we study that in our own hearts, minds, bodies, lives, habits. And then there's the the defense, the, the the uh, polarizing, negativizing force. And the way that plays out globally. And the whole kind of, you know, the, um, the machinery of war and um, the demonizing of particular cultures. The scapegoating of of people based on whatever... It is based on ethnicity or based on nationality or based on religion or based on uh, sexual orientation or whatever. Again, all the things that you know as well as I do. And meditation world, the world of of being interested in kind of um, growing as a human being and caring for the world, might be the kind of twin... Uh, orientations of a real transformational practice? How can I grow my own being and capacity to understand what the hell this is, this being alive, and grow my capacity to care for the world and respond to the world, etc.? That, that, that realm of sort of transformational practice tends to be a kind of, you know, t- it has a left dish slant to it, right? And I say that a little bit cautiously because I don't, I don't know who many of you are and I don't know what your political persuasion is. But I think it's particularly important, maybe this sounds a little strange, we'll see, I don't mind. I think it's particularly important for the kind of liberal left to learn about the, for, the, the, the defensiveness and divisiveness and the demonising of others. Because the right right do that as well, right? We know that the right do that. We can probably point to many ways that the right do that. But the right tend to only do that towards the left. Whereas the left tend to do that towards the right and towards many other factions of the left. And so those that claim the mantle of being progressive and liberal and tolerant, we've got to tolerate everyone. We've got to include everyone. We've got to love everyone. Except for those people who don't Correspond to my version of what it means to love everyone and be tolerant, because those people aren't loving, those people aren't tolerant, those people aren't uh, progressive, those people aren't etc. etc. And so, kind of demonising until until there's a the 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 scope for what is allow what is tolerant enough can get rather tight, narrow. So. I don't want to get too much into the kind of the, the the charged territory of all of that, but hey, that's what's playing out. And given that the political scene is so polarized at the moment, and it's not just—it seems to me—it's not just polarized left to right. That's the obvious polarizing. There's lots of other little polarizings within that as well, and which we probably, hopefully, really care about, right? It's painful to see. The way, the polarizing of political views and the polarizing of around all those other, those categories that I just spoke about, and the, the demonizing and marginalizing of different sections of the population, it's painful to see how that plays out. And yet, if we care about that, we need to study it here, as well as, you know, standing up with whatever convictions we have, and whatever ways we feel able to or called to to participating in the wider world of that. How do I push, push away experience I don't like? How do I push away people I don't like? How do I get defensive? You know, that's... I warned you at the beginning it wasn't glamorous, right, <laughs> this stuff. But man, the, the, the importance of that and the liberation that's available in that, the freeing up that's possible. If I can firstly be present enough to recognize when I'm doing that, be willing To not to actually explore the dynamics of it, to feel into the pushing away, to really be curious. Why am I? Why do I need to make myself different from, or apart from, or separate from, or far away from this experience, or this person, or this group, or this belief, or whatever it is? Right, the introverted version, or the extroverted version, or the, the kind of the way the globalized, the institutionalized version. And then delusion or distraction or disconnection, you know, if we look at the way that plays out in the world, just all the myriad ways we have invented, what a creative culture we've become at um, the mechanics of disconnection. <laughs> and the, the, the many ways that we find to, you know. Partly just amuse and entertain ourselves. And amusing and entertaining ourselves can be edifying in all kinds of different ways. And it can be manipulative in all kinds of ways. And there's a whole, there's, you know, there's a lot of the, the kind of industry, the sort of uh, the, the entertainment industry, if you like, that has grown up as a kind of globalized or externalized version of of all of that disconnection and again all of these things i'm not suggesting that they're wrong in any way They're natural human tendencies the tendency to to move towards the pleasant the tendency to move away from and be afraid of the unpleasant and the tendency to kind of just feel the need to move away from myself into some sort of disconnect they're, they're, they're natural tendencies, they're understandable tendencies, they're all to human tendencies. And actually, the going against the stream of them, I would say, isn't to eradicate them. In fact, it's important that we're not trying to eradicate them. Because then you just get into a lot of conflict with yourself. Mm. Rather to study them, to understand them. What goes on in the mechanics of disconnection? Where where do I feel? What's happening that I'm trying to disconnect from? Sometimes the disconnect can be kind of wholesome, or at least um, yeah, just helpful, relieving. And again, in a in a, in an environment like the meditation scene, where there's lots of talk of being mindful, being present, being connected. Something like watching Netflix can feel like some sort of secret shameful thing that I need to not tell my meditation friends about, right? Because it's like, why would I be watching Netflix? That's, and now I've come to this talk, and Martin keeps talking about disconnect, and now I was going to go home and watch the last bit of Sensate, and I can't because that would surely just be disconnecting. Have you seen Sensate? It's fantastic. <laughs> I've, got two, I've got two episodes to go of of the second series and I I noticed myself you know sometimes there's like ah oh, the, the wonder it's it's, a, it's um sometimes it really feels like a, a wholesome thing to do to ah oh, to let to let the world recede in various ways and you know there's different ways of doing that one way is I try, I try pretty much every day and sometimes it's not possible but pretty much every day I manage in some way to lie down for a bit after lunch Oh, and actually, it's it's very con- contactful, connecting, just sensing bodily life, sensing whatever the momentum that's built up through the morning. You know, the momentum of doing, or the momentum of thinking, or just the kind of energetic momentum, and then just allowing that to soften a little bit, recede. It's very, very restorative, and because I'm tra- I travel a lot, and I'm often in different time zones, and Jet lag, etc. I feel like that kind of lying down is the one of the most uh kind of helpful things I can do for just sort of caring for my nervous system in some way. But also sometimes there's something about the kind of oh, like let the TV take the strain. <laughs> oh. And it's very interesting there's a, there's a sense of actually remaining certain contactful with my experience to a certain extent. Of course, not completely because part of the attention's going out to the thing. but I can really I really notice in that sense, oh, there's a way of enjoying enjoying the the spectacle or the entertainment or whatever is informative or uh, you know enlivening about whatever I've chosen to watch, and a way of oh, it's like letting. Uh, letting body and mind actually rest in a different kind of a way, a different kind of a way than meditation. Meditation is about awakening. And there can be a profound uh, uh, physical and energetic rest in meditation. And yet at the same time, one's really exposing oneself quite nakedly and directly and intensely to one's own habits Exposing oneself to just you know whatever condition mind's in, at a given time. And while that's a you know the, you know it's been the kind of central thread of the whole of my adult life, right? I love it. And sometimes it's like that's really not what I need. Especially if I'm teaching a lot, I'm teaching, I'm meditating, teaching, talking, listening, responding. It's like what am I going to do? Go home and meditate to relax. <laughs> <laughs> It just doesn't quite fit, right? No, I'm going to watch Sensei. <laughs> so again, with this kind of the disconnect, I, don't, I, really, I really want to emphasize, I don't want to speak about this in, in kind of pejorative terms. And I want to encourage us to see, what do we do? How do we disconnect? what are we trying to do what why are we going are we leaving ourselves or we might say are we are we doing are we using you know, entertainment or whatever else as a way to actually leave ourselves or not it's like to study the tendency to 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 um yeah you know, to yeah, to go unconscious what's the language uh, Pink Floyd you comfortably numb. so the more we the more the more we get to know the pulls and pushes of these the more we actually get to um, respond well, skillfully freely, freely. Rather than just being pulled, if we don't investigate these things, our life is basically, and it can be quite shocking when we first notice it, it's basically I'm being constantly pulled by demand, defense, or dis- distraction. When we talk about you know, my life and my choices as if we're making choices, but actually we see that what we call choices, what we call my free will often, is actually a kind of slavish response to a kind of an automatic fixation on what I want, or what I don't want, or uh, I don't know what the hell I about I want, and so just checking out, being pulled towards, being pulled away from, or just being pulled out, and let me explore that. We, fi- we start to find that what initially that those things feel like I've got no choice. And then often the layer after that that arises, we find I don't actually want to let go of those things. How dull my life would be, right? It's like it sounds. I know meditation. I'm supposed to just sort of be here all peacefully and freely, but actually, like in the middle of the meditation, where I say Where's your attention now?" and just unhook, and you're like, "It's okay. I'll, I'll unhook in a, like about three minutes, but first, mm-hmm. right?" Actually, there's a sense that I like something about the rhetoric of letting go, but I don't actually want to let go. Right? So then that tends to be the next layer of just feeling how strong, the, not just the habit in those three directions, but the actual belief that that's what I need to do. That that's where the interest is. That's what the fixation is, that that's where the yummy object is, in the getting or that that's the strength of the belief that that's what I need to do is resist and get away from and push against that unlovely object. And that's how I'll get to feel okay. But then increasingly we start to actually sense the cost of doing that. We start to actually sense the, the, the stress, the cost of the fixation, the fact that the tension of pulling and pushing, pulling and pushing, pulling and pushing. And the more we sense that, the more we dare to start softening. And we might start to actually fall in love a little more with a kind of undemanding presence, an undefended presence, an undistracted presence. We start to feel the kind of the beauty and the benefit of actually being available to ourselves available to life, available to the world, moment by moment. Now this this trip this weekend with British Airways was quite uh, extraordinary. It started off with a text message at quarter to five on Sunday morning from BA. Your flight to London has been cancelled. That was it. Not, uh, we rebooked you on another flight. The flight from London to New York was still going. I was booked onto that, but The flight from Toulouse to London to get that flight was cancelled. Oh, interesting. So I was kind of I woke up, you know, I woke up. I'd left my phone on because I knew there was problems with the flight. So I thought, let's leave the phone on in case. So quarter to five, your flight has been (laughs) cancelled. And the whole day I won't go into there was a lot of drama and amazing things and I got three different flights were cancelled. At one point I spent two thousand dollars on a new ticket. To get here with the thought that I would somehow it would work out because the British Airways would reimburse me for something. Anyway, then I got put on another point. I managed to get reimbursed that flight I got all, all the money back again for the flight I didn't need to take. I got to London. I got kicked out of the airport at one point. They said there's no rebooking, there's no chance you can get there. You have to go to a hotel. We can't put you in a hotel because they're all full up. So go away and come back on Tuesday. <laughs> And then just as I was giving, I got a a flash on my phone again in London saying, your gate is closing in 10 minutes. (laughs) And I'm outside of Heathrow Airport by this point. So I showed the security guy, look, look. So he let me in. And I got from outside the airport, upstairs, got a boarding pass, went through airport security, ran to the airport, got the shuttle, and got into my seat in the airplane in 11 minutes from outside (laughs) the airport. And I got in seat. wow. Wow! Amazing. And then the pilot comes on. Oh, there's we've got a problem with the fuel gauges. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, there was all kinds of back and forth, and this and that, and this and that. And in the end, amazingly, I got to I got to JFK like about three and a half hours only after I was originally supposed to arrive. Amazing, amazing. But the the sense throughout the whole thing, and there's lots of ups and downs in it, right? At some point, like you can't fly, you can fly, but it's going to cost you a fortune. You can, you can't. You're going to be stranded in the airport for two days. You're going. To, you know, there was a, the feeling that ran through it all was a lot of availability to life, right? and that availability, the way, the way it, it stands out. Classically, in Dharma tradition, the way the, we talk about the wisdom in terms of the working with these various uh, graspings and contractions. But the way that then opens up is as the various expressions of love. Another word for an availability to, love, to life is love. When we're not fixated on what I need and what I don't need and what I ought to do and what I don't want. when we're not fixated on being pulled up and pushed in one of these three directions in different ways. Quite naturally we feel a kind of friendliness, kind of affection, a kind of connectedness, kind of genuine heartfelt interest in what's happening. We showed up at the airport, you know, and there's like this chaos and long lines and everything. I stand there and I can see that the people, the British Airways staff, you know, imagine it's a terrible weekend for them. And people are oh, I need to get to such and such a place. It's like, yeah, well, we all do, right? There's thousands of us. We all need to get to such and such. But uh, why, what kind of help is it to turn up at the desk and say, and bang your fist and say, well, I need to get to Rio de Janeiro? Well, okay, sir, but, you know. So they're doing their best. So I got to the front of the, of the queue and I said, wow. You know, this must be a difficult weekend for you guys. And there's just something in you know the availability. It's like, oh, first thing, we two human beings, we've both got some kind of inconvenient situation, and here we are. And it was it just you know letting the human contact, the availability to life, letting that be the ground. That's more important than the fixation on what I want or what I need or the incapacity then to see what you want or you need. Just, if we have a little space, if we're, and even in the small moments, without waiting for the big dramas of life, in the little pushes and pulls that happen all through your day, every day, in the little pushes and pulls that are happening while you're sitting in meditation, in studying those directions of mind, you get to be more available. And then, when some kind of Drama plays out. One's able to see that the, the big dramas of life actually share the same nature as the small things. Right? There's the tendency to meet them with demand and defence and disconnect, and there's the possibility to meet them with a kind of availability. And then you know, I, and then I got to London, and there it, it was really like, a, like, you know, there's people strewn around the airport in various states of. Uh, Distress, or fatigue, or you know, people with their children and their luggage is gone, and they need to feed or change the nappies of their children. Just lots of difficulty. And then, what do you do? And that that availability for life that just comes forth as a certain kind of recognition of the human condition. Wow, it's difficult. There's a lot of people having a difficult time. And not, and again, letting that be more primary. So that then when the just the person's there with their kind of iPad trying to figure everything out and everybody's cramming their different demands on the person. And just the capacity. And I felt, you know, I felt unable to push myself forward somehow and make, try to make my need, I've got to get to JFK. There's people at New York Insight that need me. <laughs> 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 it's like not no, making my drama too important. And then you know, that availability to life, that the sense is the solidarity, the compassion in others. And then, of course, the alert comes through. Oh, like some kind of blessing. And then that availability to life, mudita. So, right, you recognize these as the, the, the Brahma Viharas, right? The general availability to life is metta, loving-kindness. Just a kind of friendly, radiant, inclusive contactfulness with what's happening. And then things go wrong. For oneself or for others or both. And that availability to life that shows up as a solidarity with inconvenience, drama, difficulty, desperation sometimes. Disaster sometimes. That solidarity with suffering that we call compassion. And then, you know, beautiful blessings happen. Little human contacts. The thing comes on the phone. Wow, I get to run through the airport and make it to my seat. Wow. In that sense of being able to take in the blessings of the beautiful wherever we see them or encounter them, which we call mudita. Right? Appreciation, delight, gratitude, wonder. It's, we, there's, 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 a, there's, many, there's much, much, much in life that we can appreciate or delight in or be grateful for. But we just don't see it when we've got the blinkers on of demand and defence and disconnect. And then, you know, that availability of, of life that actually recognizes all of that, the whole texture, the ups and the downs, the, the, that availability that's called upeka, usually called equanimity, which I tend to just actually call just the, the vast, wide openness of heart that recognizes, hey, that's what life's like, up and down, this and that, wanted and unwanted, convenient and inconvenient and the willingness to be available in that way. So, to go against the stream of these forces really means to meet them, explore them, be willing to find out our style on them. And in doing so, we become more available. We bring love to where otherwise there's just compulsiveness, impulsiveness, habit-forming. And a kind of, uh, and the more we're under the influence of those of those ha- habits, the more we're self-obsessed. The more we're kind of you know, the 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 less we actually see and feel and respond to our common human situation. So, study your contractions, friends, for your freedom and well-being and availability to life. So, thank you for your patience. I spoke a little longer than I'd wished to, but we have some time. So if there's thoughts, reflections, explorations that you have from your side, please feel free. Yeah. Is it Lynn? Hi. Hi. Yeah.
1: Well, so glad you're here. (laughs) It's nice to see you. Oh, nice to see you um, what you just described really touches me because um very similar situation happened to me when i was traveling a few weeks ago what i found is i could have that kind of availability toward life or other situations after retreat mm-hmm. after being away having enough rest for the body for the mind and and then i could i could really act and feel the way to to describe I think what's hard is if I go on for 5 6 months of without a retreat or rest that accumulations yeah. that despite the understanding or despite even the awareness there's just no room for having that yeah. in the moment when it comes arise so how how do we create that in a daily life If retreat is not available, (laughs) or yeah,
0: practice. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, what of course, what you mean by retreat, what you get from retreat, right, from the optimizing conditions is that you get to support a certain kind of slowing down and simplifying and re- and plugging in so you get more sensitized to those pulls and then you come out from retreat and that the momentum of your practice lasts for a while right it lasts for a while where you're still sensitized and then the rest of life crashes in and then the retreat feels distant and then you feel more pulled into the old patterns so when i say practice the the most the best thing you can do as an orientation of practice is just slow down all the time. I know that sounds simple, but if you look and you notice, we all so often just doing things faster than we need to. And I'm not really talking about the outward movement, right? It's not like forcing yourself to walk slowly along this Manhattan street when everyone else is, you know. But it's just. To, but if you notice, we tend to walk kind of purposefully, right? We walk when there's, there's, it's like we're more. That's the demand thing, which is like the the pull. We're focused on the destination, or we're focused on where we're going, where we need to be, right? and just it's incredibly transformative to actually make a practice of just. Just seeing if you need to be going as fast as you are right now. You know, even if you're just making a cup of tea. It's like, make a cup, make a cup of tea quickly. Like, but the kettle takes the time that it takes to boil. Right? So the, having that extra momentum, all it does is it serves to reinforce those three directions. So again, it's not to give yourself a hard time for that, but just to see. I find that to be incredibly potent as a practice of slowing down. And then that cup of tea is a mini-retreat, right? Because you're actually providing yourself with exactly the same conditions that a retreat is giving you. Oh, just to the possibility to slow down a little bit in the tea-making. Okay. Okay.
1: Hi, Hi. what's your name?
0: Harmony. Harmony. Yes.
1: Thank you very much. It was wonderful. Mm. Um, of the three you mentioned, the defensive and then the grabbing and then the third one, um, I feel like I can relate with the first two, but the third one I feel um, I need a little bit more explanation on. Even yeah. Just
0: yeah. So, um, it's in terms of the way we experience the energetic way we experience right the first two which you say you understand more they they're, they're m- much more obvious right because they are they, a fixation on something specific i want that or i don't want the other the the nature of the third one is that which i'm calling disconnect is i don't know what i want right so i got uh. I go out, I roam, I go into boredom, or I go into restlessness, or agitation, or some kind of low-level dissatisfaction, which isn't a dissatisfaction with anything. It's just, uh, it's, you know when you go to the fridge and you open it, and you go, uh. (laughs) (laughs) it's not mealtime, you're just there because, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you know what I mean. (laughs) Right. So we tend to we tend to notice that only after the fact, at least for a while, right? Because it's the nature of it is that I've kind of gotten lost from myself. And it's only afterwards you start to say, Oh, that's that's that sort of spaced out or disconnected or uh, you know, boredom is that so uh, there's nothing here worthy of attention. Uh, and that kind of just What shall I do? You know, are you channel hopping? Right? We don't do channel hopping anymore because we don't watch TV anymore. You know, we choose what to watch through Netflix or whatever. Senseite usually. Uh, But 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 you know you know that. uh, So it's that kind of like you know, there's nothing particular that's pulling that I'm pulling at. Nothing particular that feels like a, a problem. But it's just it's kind of low-level dissatisfaction of some kind. Does that sound?
1: Yes, that makes sense. Right. Thank you.
0: Yeah. So I have a question. Hmm,
1: please. Um, so what's an extroversion, an extroverted form of disconnectedness, and an introverted form of disconnectedness?
0: Right. So, like I was saying, the introverted form of disconnectedness tends to be just a kind of uh, getting lost in one's own dramas. You no, know, just, to, oh, this this it might be, we'll be just repeating what's happened to us, or it might be that we're just kind of, um, just sort of telling ourselves details or getting lost in sort of daydream. But it, it's it's just a kind of, it's a going unconscious, but it's mostly... The loop that we're turning around is the stories about it's all about me, and the extroverted form is more just being pulled out by the world, right? Oh, 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 oh! What shall I do? What shall I do? No, but people, when you go out and you look at the menu, oh, oh, I don't know what to have. I know, oh, it's like so. Indecision is one of those one of those forms. Daydreaming is a form. Indecision is a form. Paralysis. I don't, I don't, uh, 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 you know, not knowing what to do, feeling pulled in different directions. Yeah, yeah. The the other two, the like we were just saying, the other two are much more noticeable and more workable with. It's the same, right? Like if you just look at the 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 vedana, the Buddha talks about as being the three flavors of experience: pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, right? So we, we recognize pleasant much more often. And when, if something pleasant arises for us in life in general or in meditation, for example, oh, we notice the pleasantness. If something unpleasant arises for us, we really notice the unpleasantness. If something neutral arises, that's, what, that's the very fact of the neutral is we don't notice it. So the, the demand is the relationship with the pleasant. The defense is the relationship with the unpleasant and the disconnect is the relationship with the neutral. So like, feel your elbows right now. Can you feel your elbows? Yeah. So what? Right. There's nothing to keep my attention there. It's not interesting. I mean, yeah, because it's neutral. If, you were, if I pinch if I and pinch your elbow, oh, then you get interested in it, right? Because it's unpleasant. If I come and gently caress your elbow, oh, then you get interested in it because it's pleasant. But otherwise... Neutral. It's like try to really just maintain attention on your elbows. It's like <laughs> attention just drifts away from the unpleasant. Uh, sorry, from the from the neutral. So the disconnect is the relationship with the neutral that we tend not to notice so much. So it's the it's the other two that that uh, that we feel and where a lot of the work is. But for some people, the style is that i that we more we more tend to just get lost and go numb, or go unconscious, or get lost in daydream, or whatever it is, more than we get pulled into strong uh, desire or aversion, demand or defense. So who, who, who spoke? Oh, hi. Sorry. Hi. It's OK. What's your name? Renata. Renata. Um, well rather than antidote the encu- the encouragement would be to just to what i'm calling study it it's not a very good word because it sounds conceptual study what's happening but i mean study it experientially right because then we start to see like in the demand you start to see what am i really hoping for that's like the 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 a helpful contemplation, what do I really want? My attention's fixated on this. I think it's this, but if we really let ourselves feel the wanting, the fixation, the demand, what do I really want?" there's all kinds of insights that we might start to have about what we're trying to do with that fixation. And then with the defensiveness, what am I afraid of? For example, what am I afraid of? I mean, and like even then in meditation, to start to see the difference between, for example, discomfort in our knees or legs, the heat or pressure, the difference between that and the relationship with it, when I'm adding on all kinds of extra layers of pushing and resisting and making it much worse. Actually, the heat and pressure isn't so bad, it's all the rest. And then the same with the disconnect, you know, let yourself actually study it it's like oh what am i try- what am i trying to get away from what's my belief in the 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 idea that something else or somewhere else or something different is better than this we start to understand something about the withdrawal of sensitivity that's there right often in boredom or restlessness it's like there's nothing here worth paying attention to that's actually not true it's just a withdrawal of sensitivity so Rather than an antidote, the encouragement is that we open up and we get to explore those realms, and that's where it comes alive. Okay, so I can see Kathy looking at her watch over there, and um, sure enough, it's almost 9 o'clock. So um, just a couple of lines for me by way of things to finish. I've put some of my propaganda out there, so... um, (laughs) There's one or two postcards of the Moulin, which is the very beautiful center I live at in France. The postcard itself is in French, so you can read it if you read French. But if not, you can look at the pretty pictures on the front. (laughs) There's also uh, some postcards about the year-long mindfulness teacher training that I run with Mark Coleman. And there's also some postcards about worldwide Insight which is an online um, interactive teaching platform that I set up with some friends. And we have different renowned uh, Dharma teachers that teach there each week. So um, if you're interested in any of that, uh, feel free. And, um, yeah, I want to just thank you for coming and uh, participating and listening and exploring. And to thank New York Insight for having me. And, you know, I... uh, I tend to come here every time I'm passing through New York, and I'm very fond of here as a, a place and the sangha here. So I want to, would like to em- encourage you to support New York Insight with all your generosity, and uh, you know, so that it can carry on functioning. And of course I have an ulterior motive, because... Kathy told me earlier that the dana that you offer gets split, right? Like New York Insight gets some and I get some. So for that, also please feel free to be as generous as you are able to and wish to. And uh, the precarious life of uh, living and traveling on dana is such that I'm very appreciative of your support. So So. (laughs) That's a wish. Heartfelt wish and good intention. Okay, so thanks very much, friends.